caffeine And right in the middle of a good dream Like all at once I wake up From something that keeps knocking at my brain Before I go insane I hold my pillow to my head And spring up in my bed Screaming out the words I dread I think I love you Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, December 3rd, 2017. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, in many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So the three of us uh, trekked out to Milburn, New Jersey, to the Paper Mill Playhouse to see Annie. So, uh, Peter, why don't you start us off with Annie? Well, I imagine that everybody who's listening has seen Annie somewhere along the line. This was my uh, 17th um, Annie, dating back to the original at Goodspeed Opera House when, uh, before Dorothy Loudon and Little Girls, uh, the song came in. So, uh, so I have a big history with this and um, a number of opinions about it. And uh, in fact, my MTI column this week is going to be about the fact um, when you do Annie, there are certain things you might consider doing and certain things you might consider avoiding. And um, one of the things that I I like is the fact that in recent productions of Annie, I have found that the girl playing Annie has been much too young, and I think she needs to be a little older, as Andrea McArdle was around that age, um, because she has to have street smarts, she has to have experience, she really has to have that uh, toughness around her. And ironically enough, uh, the reason that Kristen Vigard, the original Annie back in uh, 1976, was let go was because uh, Martin Charnon, the director, felt that she just didn't have that that extra toughness. Um, ironically enough he has done many a production since where he's cast i think much too young so um i like the fact that um here at milburn new jersey now two girls are playing the parts so i can only speak for one of course and the one that i can speak for is cassidy pry that's her name and she does have the toughness um and uh, so i'm very pleased about that um i thought christopher sieber was excellent as daddy warbucks um and uh, yes, he is bald, uh, but boy, does he have the sensitivity. He really grows, uh, um, the character grows. He really grows um, as the evening goes on into really falling in love with this little girl. So I think um, that's it's a very, very, very successful performance. So uh, you have to have that um, tentativeness at the beginning, and then you have to fall in love with the girl. One thing that um, he doesn't quite do, and very few do, that Reed Shelton, the original, did awfully well, is with the first time we see him, he talks about his airplane trip, and he talks about the fact that it's been 33 hours, and it, um, I think with six stops. And the thing is, Reed Shelton was so good about saying that with a big smile, as if to say, isn't the world progressing wonderfully? Isn't it <laughs> wonderful that we can get somewhere in six hours, um, with six stops in only 33 hours, you know, that we used to have to take trains and now we're taking planes. And uh, so many since then, and including Christopher Sieber, say it with uh, a grimace as if to say, you can't believe what I've been through. So um, I'd like to see productions where uh, Daddy Wabucks is happy about uh, the trip he's just taken um, and he sees it as progress. So one thing that has to be done, it's a very important thing in Annie, and I'll never forget um, the second night on Broadway. I purposely got tickets for the second night on on Broadway, knowing the show was going to get raves, and I, I love when I go to a second performance after a show gets raves because the cast cannot wait to do it for you. You know, they're so happy, they're so up, they know they don't have to look for a job for five years and all that. So anyway, I still remember so vividly in the scene uh, where Rooster is leaving for the first time after he's visited his sister Aggie Hannigan uh, that he bumps into Grace Farrell and says, excuse me, Blondie. Okay, later in the show, uh, when Ralph Mudge, the same guy, Rooster pretending to be Annie's father, leaves, he bumps into Grace Farrell again and says, excuse me, Blondie. And that's where she starts to put two and two together, that she's met him before and that uh, he may very well be an imposter. You have to hear that Blondie. And unfortunately, the way it was staged, um, the actor was facing uh, upstage and um, we didn't hear it as well. So 
when uh, he said hello, Blondie, at the end, it made no impression on the audience whatsoever. So I think that was um, something that was uh, a problem. What I also liked about Beth Level's performance, um, there is a scene where they're talking about kidnapping Annie um, after, uh, I'm sorry, saying that she's going to be their daughter, um, the Mudges, as they're called, mm-hmm. um, Rooster and uh, Lily St. Regis. And the thing is that, um, okay, so we get the kid. What do we do with her now? And uh, at that point, Rooster pulls out a knife indicating we'll kill her. And Beth Level really did a very good job of looking aghast yeah. at that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I don't see that very often. You know, that so – it's one thing to make her uh, somebody who is really so down and out about having to tend to kids. And that's why the little girl song is very, very smart to have in there because it really shows the other side of the story. Imagine dealing with all these kids. You know, it would be a problem. And uh, one of the problems, of course, that um, Aggie Hannigan runs into all the time is the fact that one kid steps on her foot. And in fact, to the point where she says she always, uh, she never misses. Okay. But the thing is, that should look like an accident. Um, and the thing is, in recent productions, in this one too, I have seen the kid purposely go over, stamp on her foot, and go away. It, it, that's not nearly as funny as when the kid accidentally does it. The kid doesn't mean any harm. It's just that she does it. So, so I think that's another issue that um, should be addressed um, in this production. Similarly speaking, at the beginning of the show, I've seen um, something here uh, that I believe is added, and that's the fact that Miss Hannigan drinks, um, and the kids see her drink, and then um, she says, it's medicine. I don't believe that's in the actual show. Um, I could be wrong about that. But the problem with this is it gives away a wonderful thing that happens later, because if if, if Miss Hannigan is trying to clandestinely drink and make sure the kids don't see her. She doesn't want to give that away to them. It has far more power later when the littlest often um, Molly during It's the Hard Knock Life starts pretending she's drinking. So in other words, Miss Hannigan is not fooling the kids as she thinks she is. Um, and um, so that's much funnier than if she sees her drinking. Then what's the joke about her, her um, aping Miss Hannigan into uh, drinking? So, so that's a bit of a problem as uh, well. So um, what I also want to mention, I, what, one of the things I love about seeing Annie is that um, I hear four lines that are not on the original cast album, and that's at the end of the first act. And I wish they were on there um, because um, in the song, You Won't Be an Orphan for Long, it's so tender when um, Daddy Warbucks, who has offered Annie this wonderful life, and she's turned it down because she wants her real parents, and he is going to move heaven and earth to find them when he mm-hmm. says, What a thing to occur, finding them losing her. No, you won't be an orphan for long. Sorry, three lines, but you get my point. I think that's so moving, and I wish you were on the cast album. And um, I'm always tremendously uh, impressed by that, that um, it really shows us how deeply he feels for her. And um, so I, you know, I think Martin Charn is an excellent lyricist, and I truly believe that some, some of his best work is in here. Uh, <laughs> I'll go to bat for Badahari any day, any day. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people won't, but I certainly will. Uh, but, um, you know, I'm an Apple seller, too, and I, I, I won't need anything. Uh, I don't need anything but you. Um, songs of that era used to do those topical things, you know, uh, used to put in those little details. Right? I think it's great. Um, Santa Claus, we never see Santa Claus. What's that? Who's he? I think that's a fabulous lyric. Um, really, really smart. So uh, I know a lot of people don't want to hear a word about Annie, that it's one of those shows that has been so overexposed that uh, they're, they're is sick and tired of it. I never feel that way about a show I love the first time. Hmm. Um, uh, maybe it's because I grew up when the Beach Boys were singing, be true to your school just like you would to your girl. Well, I'm true to my show just like I am to my <laughs> girl because I really believe if you love a show originally, you should never leave it with effect, the affection you have for it because after all, it's a wonderful show and just because other people got on the bandwagon, loved it, produced it endlessly, and every time you turn around, there it is. No, that's still not enough reason to say that you don't respect this show. And I also recommend if you haven't seen it, which I think is really very much worth seeing, is Life After Tomorrow, which is a documentary about what mm. happened to the Law of the Annies after they uh, grew too tall and after Martin Charnin took them to 
Michael Myers and said, I'm sorry, kid, it's over. You're too big. Uh, what happened to their lives after that? And uh, I think it's a very effective documentary by Gil Cates Jr. You may remember Gil Cates Sr. as a producer of the Oscar in such plays as I Never Sang for My Father. But um, I, I recommend that highly. Um, so there we go. All right, Michael, what did you think? Well, to your uh, last point, or your second to last point, Peter, yeah, I told several people I was going to see Annie at Paper Mill, and, and a couple of them rolled their eyes and said, I'm all Annied out. Sure, sure. And I thought, really, I said, I will always go see you. a good production of Annie, especially because I thought the two Broadway revivals were each incredibly <laughs> disappointing and wrongheaded in their own way. Uh, I My main... Uh, Two reasons for wanting to see this one was as soon as I heard of the casting of Beth Level as Miss Hannigan and Christopher Sieber as Oliver Warbucks, I thought that they would both be great in those roles, and they did They did not disappoint. I thought they were excellent. Um, and although I had a lot of individual problems with individual moments of Mark Hobie's direction in terms of some of the staging that Peter mentioned and also some of the line readings uh, of the uh, company, I think, could have been helped along a little bit. Uh, Overall, this production was vastly superior to both of those Broadway revivals because I think the director trusted the material and didn't try to reinvent and and uh, darken it. You know, I mean, the darkness is there. Uh, If if you direct it properly, along with the joy and the humor and all the other wonderful elements that make it such a great show. So I don't think uh, I think it's very counterproductive to artificially hammer down the darkness of Annie. I, I, and I think that both of those Broadway revivals proved that. Um, that was an interesting point about Annie's age, Peter. And I, you know, I think that initially I, I didn't agree, but I think you have a good point. Um, another reason why it helps if she's a little older is she kind of uh, functions as a sort of a, a mother figure to these. To mm, some absolutely. She's the leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The very first thing we see is her comforting uh, Molly, That's right. That's little right. Molly, who's mm-hmm. having a, a who's having a nightmare. And, and then Annie sings that beautiful, beautiful song, maybe. Um, so I was. I was really pleased with this production. I, uh, the, the sets um, were real, are just, just beautiful, including several drops that are, are so gorgeous. You know, you just you can't believe it. Um, scenic, uh, it says original scenic design, Beowulf bore it. I guess they're trying, I don't know what exactly oh. original means. Oh, uh, David and- Mitchell did it originally and it looked pretty much like that to me. Right. Well, I guess they're trying to maybe stress the point that these designs. are. I understand that. Yeah. But uh, nevertheless, uh, it seemed very close to what David Mitchell did. So I'm surprised that he doesn't get a credit anyway. You know, the uh, staircase in the middle of the mansion. Haven't we seen that in Follies? I think oh, that's sure. a, it's the Probably standard sure. staircase that Paper Mill uses. <laughs> Years ago, Paper Mill actually had an article in its playbill saying, hey, we recycle. And they went through all these things about all these uh, pieces they brought. You saw this and this, and then you started again in this and then this. And I thought, I wonder if this is wise to tell people this. You know, I mean, they might say, gee, if, you, if you're recycling things, shouldn't the, the ticket prices be a little lower? You know, so, and anyway, go ahead, Michael. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, that's OK. Um I, by the way, I did ask if this was uh, some kind of a mini tour because sometimes uh, that happens yeah, with paper right. mill. Yeah. But I was told no, this is a sit-down production and it's their production. So I, um, I highly recommend getting there, especially if you were disappointed by. Uh, either of the last two Broadway productions, um, animals by William Berloni. Uh, so there's someone, <laughs> there's someone who, uh, really, you know, has been contributing to Annie from the beginning, I guess. And, and stayed his career. It has did, there yeah. always been two dogs in there? Is that a dog understudy? Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't remember that either, James. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Since, yeah. yeah I, I mean, totally uh, forgot since, that. since the show's been a hit, yeah, there have always been two around. In fact, um, I remember uh, uh, that one time the understudy had to take over and they thought the understudy was better and that dog got the job and the other one um, – I'm not saying they – euthanized it but I mean, anyway they uh oh, no. but, oh, but the dog lost his job I mean, I'll tell you that. it's like dog 42nd street 
<laughs> right. <laughs> really, you know. So uh, so that did happen. There are so many amazingly wonderful stories connected with Annie, and, um, and some of them are, are grisly, too. But, I mean, for example, the production of Trinity Square some years ago by Amanda, is it pronounced Steenard? I don't know. She's got Pride and Prejudice at the Cherry Lane right now. But anyway, when she was at Providence, um, she added a scene at the end of the show where Annie wakes up in the orphanage and was all a dream. Oh right, you meant oh. yeah. I think you oh, I would have loved to over. see that. Yeah, n- not very well with Charles Strauss. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, Thomas Me, and then uh, yeah. Martin Sheldon. I'll tell you, um, I uh, that might have been the last performance when uh, of that scene. Uh, I don't think they canceled the whole show. I just think they made them take out that scene. And and I understand the logic behind that. But Mar- Michael, when you talk about darkening. Uh, you know, that's the darkest of them all. Um, so I, I, I do understand what she's talking about because that's another example of how people have gotten, and I'm amusing with this word in quotation marks, sick of Annie, that this was the antidote. The fact that if it's all such a lovely fairy tale that it often can go from literal mm. rags to literal riches, that, uh, indeed, if that's too much to take for some people, that it's too much sweetness and light, well, then here's the way we c- counteract that because it is unlikely likely to be fair it is unlikely that a girl would win over a guy in such a short period of time and uh, he'd want to adopt her um so yeah the other thing i'd like to point out just for the record when i was listening to um the show and uh daddy warbucks offers a reward of fifty thousand dollars i thought gee i wonder what that is in today's money so in case you were wondering too nine hundred thirty four thousand three hundred twenty nine dollars and fifty five cents now you know (laughs) Ah, he was a little bit cheap. He could have gone for the cool million. Million, right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) On a similar note, uh, someone who uh, saw the show the night I did questioned another line. Maybe you can – your memory can help us, Peter. There's a a point where uh, Grace Farrell comes to the orphanage to tell uh, Miss Hannigan that – this is the that, ever line, right? <laughs> well, no. Well, no. Uh, tells uh, to tell Miss Hannigan that M- Daddy, that Oliver Warbucks wants to adopt Annie, and uh, Miss Hannigan says something like, "Are you telling me that um, that a millionaire wants to adopt Annie?" And, and she say, "No, I'm telling you that a billionaire wants to adopt Annie." And uh, the person that was questioning it said, "Were there even billionaires in America at that time?" And I said, "Well." I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. Maybe, maybe a few. Uh, you know, maybe the hugest titans of industry. Uh, that yeah, was... that's that's true. A billion dollars is a lot of money in 1933. Um, so, no, I don't know the answer to that question. But I, it does bring up the point that uh, suddenly there, there's a a, a, a little tiff between them where they use the word ever endlessly uh, ever oh. ever 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 I don't think that's in the original yeah. either I don't recall mm-hmm. that and um, um, I found that excessive you know it, it's inevitable that when a show like this has been around since uh, forever that people want to do and this is a word in quotation marks too it's a word often used in the theater improvements and the reason it's in quotation marks is because most improvements are not improvements they're just things actors do and the directors figure uh, leave it in go ahead Head, leave it in, you know. I mean, so, uh, and it turns out to be a little injurious to the show, or sometimes even largely injurious to the show. So I wasn't amused by ever, 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 which was said endlessly, and neither was the audience, by the way. You know, so oh, you know what I found interesting about my audience? Um, there's a wonderful joke in which. Um, when Daddy Warbuck said, "Did anybody call?" and um, Grace Farrell mentions a, a, a litany of names, very important people, and finishes with Harpo Marx. And ah. uh, Daddy Warbuck says, um, what did Harpo want? And that's funny for its own sake, because the other people are far more significant in the world of business uh, than Harpo Marx. And the fact that he's interested in Harpo Marx is funny for its own sake. But then she says, he didn't say <laughs> Which is a good line because, of course, yeah, you're laughing. You know, I mean, it's a great line because, of course, Harper was famous for not speaking. The audience groaned at my performance. Yeah. <laughs> they t- they oh, thought interesting. It was, yeah. I mean, they thought it was the, the way people react when you come out with a good pun. Uh, people react um, with a groan because they feel puns automatically deserve groans. Yeah. So, you know, kind of interesting. Um, uh well, I yeah, I agree with you about the ever, ever, ever moment. I thought that was one of the uh, the 
lesser moments in Mr. Hobie's direction. But overall, I just thought, as I said, that it w- th- this was just so far above those last two productions. And I think that, it, it, generally speaking, the material was trusted. I have one other uh, question for you, uh, Peter, because I don't remember this for sure. In this production, the song, the title song, Annie, mm-hmm. in Act 2, which I think is unfortunately one of the weakest numbers in the show. It is, it is, um, it is. Went directly into I Don't Need Anything But You Without a Break. Is that normally done? Well, for one thing, um, when Annie was uh, white-hot popular and uh, touring companies were going out, Martin Charnas said he wanted each company to be a little different from the other, and he used to play around, especially with that scene. So uh, that is something I have seen. I believe the first time I saw it was in the um, first national tour in Houston. So uh, so I'm really <laughs> I'm a little fuzzy about which originated on Broadway and which was in the tour, uh, but he did make a concerted effort to make each company different. So that has been done before, but I won't necessarily say it was in the original Broadway production. Well, anyway, I don't have much else to say about Annie, except... It's amazing do, we've said this much! Do, <laughs> please, please do go if you like the show. If you don't Especially like the show, I guess you don't need to. <laughs> no, we have kids who've never seen a Broadway show. This is a good one to bring them to. Yes. So I brought uh, my two kids, uh, a boy and a girl, four, 14 and 19, uh, 14 and 19. nine, oh, nine. <laughs> 14 and nine. And it just uh, seems like 19 years. Yes, exactly. Anyway, go on. <laughs> they loved it. And oh, I loved it. And my li- wife loved it. And we've oh, seen Andy a bunch of times. And they're all big fans of the movie. And... So uh, I think that this is a big, huge score out of Paper Mill and that uh, you should go see it if you're a fan of Annie and you want to see a fun, uplifting show. Uh, This is a a very good ticket to get. Um, I have uh, a few questions about it uh, that maybe either one of you could answer. Uh, In the song Something Was Missing... I seem to have now it was staged this year in uh, in this production in Daddy Warbucks study with just Daddy Warbucks and Annie. I seem to have remembered in other productions that Grace was silently in this scene longing for a relationship with with Daddy <laughs> Warbucks. Now, it's, it, am I imagining that wrong or? I, I don't recall that ever. Um, I uh, I do recall at one point um, in the original Broadway production, Grace Farrell is ready to rush over after he hugs Annie and get involved in a hug. Mm. And then she backs off thinking, no, this is not my place to do this. And of course, the fact that Grace Farrell and Daddy Wabucks may turn out to uh, have a relationship was part of the crux of Annie two slash Annie Warbucks, um, and that's uh, where they got together. So uh, I don't recall uh, Grace being in the room when that happened. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, that, that I may be wrong, but I don't recall that happening. Maybe I, I maybe I'm yeah, misremem- yeah, yeah. misremembering as, it. Or as Robert Goulet says in the Happy Time, <laughs> the memory plays tricks. You know, so it, it truly does. Um, during the NYC uh, sequence, the, the star to be type of thing, I could have done without the American Idol uh, riff. You there. bet, you bet. And I'm, uh, <laughs> what we're talking about um, is yes. um, in the lyric "Tonight the Y," meaning she's going to sleep at the Y um, W um, C A uh, R H A. Um, I guess it's C A uh, under the circumstances. <laughs> but anyway, um, so there she was showing off, singing tonight. And waiting for the woos and the applause, and, yeah. and certainly in my performance at Paper Mill, that audience audience doesn't know from woos and applause at the halfway mark when you hold a note. So um, yeah, yeah, she has to be tremendously disappointed at least a Thursday matinee that the audience didn't do that uh, because that's what that's all for. But I agree with you, and we're still talking about Andy. Look at this, isn't this amazing? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, uh, you had brought up before about. The orphan's relationship with Annie, Annie being their caretaker. Now, uh, I feel as though that we should write down all these orphans' names because I think that in 10 years we will see them all and say, oh, yeah, we saw them in Annie. Because each (laughs) one of them, wow, each one of them very, very talented. I I also saw, Michael, we saw Cassidy Pry as Annie, right? We didn't see Peyton Ella. 
And um, by the way, Cassidy Pry, I thought, looked a lot like Patty Duke in The Miracle Worker. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, good for and, you. and actually, uh, somebody else <laughs> uh, mentioned it, too. But I but we both had the thought and then we both said it. It was really interesting. And uh, that's that's the point where I, I, I it occurred to me that it does help if she does look a little older because it's. Yeah, she's become their. Uh, I don't know if caretaker is the word, but she's kind of like yeah. the, the 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 mother figure, the one who's going to function, you know, in, in place of a mother who that none of them has. So my point being is that the orphans, uh, uh, the actresses they're playing the orphans, are all seem to be very well equipped to be actresses now and in the future, uh, and they had no disappointment when Annie was leaving. Mm. Um, and uh, and I was surprised about that. And this is really a, a minor, minor nitpick, but it was just interesting because I had never seen such talented actresses play the orphans before. Usually there's one or two really good ones that you think, oh, that's the any understudy. And then the rest of them are mezza, mezza. And so, but uh, the orphans write down their names. We're going to see them in the future. I think that they... They were really good. This is a great production, and I give it uh, – my family gives it four thumbs up. Right. So, <laughs> eight, <laughs> eight, eight, eight. Eight you thumbs two up. Thumbs, yeah, right. That's right. Eight <laughs> thumbs up. So uh, moving on. Uh, Michael, yes. you got to see Jesus Hop the A-Train, which is closing today, but uh, it's such an impressive production. So why don't you give us your take on that? Yes, I did just want to say because the press agent was very – very nice to get me in at the very end of the run. And I had been scheduled for to see it previously and I couldn't make it for uh, scheduling reasons. But this is a superb production of a really great play by one of our finest playwrights, Stephen Adley Gurgis, which uh, and the reason I now know how to pronounce his name correctly <laughs> is because I he was on a, a recent segment of theater talk with uh, the, Susan Haskins. And this one was co-hosted by Jason Zinneman. And I have to say that on uh, he came across as so articulate and so smart and so thoughtful on this show, which is not surprising considering the magnificent plays that he writes. Um, he really, uh, I think he's the best uh, among the best that we have. And Jesus Hop the A-Train is an incredibly powerful play set mostly on Rikers Island uh, with these uh, basically two inmates, Angel Cruz, played by Sean Caraval, and Lucius Jenkins, played by Eddie Gethegi. Um Sean Caraval, by the way, took over the role on extremely short notice during previews because another actor had to leave. I'm not sure of the circumstances. Uh, and he, he, you know, uh, it, it, you wouldn't believe it that he, uh, that he had such such an incredibly short amount of preparation because he was at the top of his game and just 100% on point. Uh, but this, um, I think there were other changes in personnel uh, during the planning of this production, but it ended up being directed by Mark Brokaw. The rest of the cast, Eric Betancourt, uh, Ricardo Chavira, and Stephanie DiMaggio. And uh, the the themes of this play uh, so much about religion and and uh, whether it's uh, you know whether it's something that really is true and people should follow or whether it's just a you know a a palliative or a crutch Um, very very interesting discussion for anyone who thinks about those matters and even the the two these two inmates one of them uh, it's two very different situations one of them um, is in jail because he shot in the ass um this religious figure who although the uh church is never actually named it's obviously supposed to be the unification church the moonies um which uh you know who are maybe not as much in the news today as they used to be but there was a point where they really were uh uh, whereas the other inmate lucius jenkins um is a serial killer who killed eight people a point that's made multiple times. And so the discussions between these two um, uh, are just really, really fascinating and deeply involving. And I don't know anyone who has a better gift than uh, Gurgis for 
making somehow allowing these really common uh, lower class uh, type people to speak in a in a way that makes them uh, sound extremely articulate and even poetic, and yet not uh, not in incongruous with what their position is in in society it's that must be really difficult to do but he does it better than anyone so um if i hope that many of you got to see this production of jesus hop the a train at signature theater they have another great gurgis play coming up our lady of 121st street and then another uh, a new play which i'm not sure i don't think it's that the title has been released yet um so they are focusing on gurgis as one of their uh playwrights this season and and he he completely and totally deserves it by the way i was there the first night that actor went on oh my god he was led a perfect then it was astonishing so oh, wow. uh, let me let me point that out. Uh, so I can only imagine that he's even more magnificent now. Yeah. So uh, Peter, you gave your reviews your review of Jesus Hop the A Train on uh, the November fifth episode of uh, this week on Broadway, where we talked about Rags of Good Speed. I'll link to that in the show notes if anybody wants to go back and listen to your take on that as well. Uh, Peter, you and I got a chance to get over to Lincoln Center to see Junk. Uh, new Ayat Akhtar play. So why don't you get us started on that? Well, I was a little afraid of this play because I had been told that it dealt with uh, a lot of big business terms that uh, may be beyond my ken. So I was very wary that I was going to get lost uh, in the shuffle. But, you know, that didn't really happen, <clears throat> even though I can't say I understood every term. Uh, if there were a vocabulary test and they put those words on the paper and asked me to define them, I wouldn't be able to do it. But the thing was, it was easier to figure out who were the good guys and who were the bad guys and what was at stake here. So I think if you are afraid of the fact that you may not understand what's going on in junk uh, because of all that, and again, uh, much of our audience may be very well versed in matters of big business, but if you're not, don't fear it. Don't fear it at all because it is pretty arresting uh, as a play. But I'm going to specifically center on one scene that I thought was very, very, very smart. So um, – what happens in the play is that our anti-hero, um, wonderfully played by Stephen Pasquale, <clears throat> eventually gets himself into serious trouble. I know it seems like I'm giving away the end of the – I am giving away the end of the play. But anyway, he gets into serious trouble and uh, he has to bargain with the authorities as I imagine uh, is happening – well, it has been happening this week in Washington where somebody has been um, <laughs> dealing with the uh, law and saying, OK, what kind of deal can we cut? So you see a scene where a deal is cut. But what's fascinating is once he goes to prison, um, he deals with one of the guards and the guard um, doesn't treat him the way the guard does in um, Jesus uh, up the A-Train, believe me. Uh, this guard is pretty much in awe of this gentleman, if we want to use that term. We don't have to. But um, so uh, he, he treats him with the utmost respect, and we even get the impression that he's very, very interested in talking to him so that he might make some money in the, in the market as well. So to see a deferential guard calling him Mr. and um, showing that this man has not lost all that much of his power even though he's incarcerated. And it is – the point is made that once he gets out, once he gets out – He's going to have a lot of that money left, even though he had to pay a whopping fine by our standards, uh, millions of dollars. He's still got plenty left when he gets out. So the point is the bad guys don't necessarily lose in this play. They're inconvenienced. That's where we get the impression that going to prison, it seems to be a, a white collar uh, minimum security prison from the way it's portrayed. So that's the power of junk. The fact is you don't – <laughs> that famous Oscar Wilde statement about you know, fiction is the, the way it plays out, um, <laughs> that the good guys don't necessarily win, the bad guys uh, don't necessarily lose. That's what happens here, and uh, that's what makes the play very arresting uh, even after he's arrested. So uh, I think it's very much worth <laughs> seeing, but I really do feel that so many people have warned me, and pe people I know who have seen it have said, well, I was lost during the first act, but I picked it up during the second. Um, and again, nobody is stupider than I when it comes to the stock market. So um, if I could do it, as Phyllis says <laughs> in Follies, you can do it too. 
I had the same reaction, Peter, and I think I said that a couple of weeks ago because they they explain a lot of it very well. But also, I think you don't need to uh, necessarily know the exact details of every single thing that they're discussing. It's it, you just you know, a more general understanding of how this, you know, like this hostile takeover is going, is going to happen. And, and, uh, and that last scene you mentioned with that guard, which I, Oh God, I love that scene too. Mm -hmm. That, that also served the purpose (laughs) of setting the, uh, setting, setting up the, uh, housing mortgages, the mortgage crisis. That was the next, uh, I guess, huge financial horror to happen. And I thought that was done so neatly by the playwright. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree, Michael. Sorry. I I think that you hit the nail on the head just now when you said that that last scene with the guard and and uh, and the uh, yeah the Merkin. criminal. I was, I'm trying to. Th- I was going to say Milliken, and I was going to say Stephen <laughs> Stephen uh, Stephen Pasquale's character. Anyway, the point is, is that the show went for 30 minutes after that scene. That should have been the last scene. And that, that, I think that that's the major flaw with this show, was Wait, that. Oh, is that true? Yeah, they had a bunch of scenes after they had a bunch of scenes after that guard scene, with him in the prison. I don't remember it that way either, Michael. But um, anyway, uh, let me very... <laughs> look at this here. I don't because think so I don't think so, James. <laughs> I. That's funny that you said that. I wonder what that means uh i think of the if i'm thinking of the wrap-up they had the they they did because after that scene didn't they have the steel worker scene they had the steel worker everybody took the payout do you yeah. guys remember yeah that's right that's right that's yes, that's, that's after well, it. i remember that guy standing over oh that's oh. the steel worker scene and, and then more. they had the wrap-up of the boski scene and they had the wrap they did the that scene with the guard at the <laughs> thirty minutes before the end should have been the last scene. Well, I uh, I agree with you that things happened after that, but I don't think it was nearly a half hour. Yeah, huh. I guess just felt like it maybe. Uh, I don't know, but uh, uh, I felt that that was the natural place to end the show. Uh, and and I and I guess I thought it did. It was the place that they ended the show. Isn't it funny that that's how I remembered it? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed the show, and I th- I was thinking to myself, uh, you could have never done this in a commercial theater. This was too large oh, yeah. of a cast oh, yeah. and oh, yeah. too expensive to, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. which is really a, a tribute to Lincoln Center to a- invest in. Something along these lines, uh, and yeah, uh, for those of us who want to see My Fair Lady, I think we're happier that it's going to be at Lincoln Center than if a producer said, "Hey, I'm reviving um, My Fair Lady on Broadway next year as a commercial production." Uh, based certainly on uh, South Pacific and The King and I, we know that they uh, certainly put in the money, and, uh, and, and in a way that commercial producers may not have the uh, luxury of doing. So, not so, only yeah. commercial producers, but also for whatever reasons, it's always struck me that the other not for profit theaters, the other major ones in the city, uh, roundabout Manhattan theater club. I, I think it's very, very rare if ever that they do shows on that scale shows with huge casts like that. And, and, uh, and, you know, huge sets, uh, lots of production values. Um, sometimes they will, there will be an occasional one that moves in that direction, but Lincoln center, I don't know if it's just because, they've been around so long and maybe their funding is so much better you can always count on if a show needs to be big in terms of cast and production it will be and if if you need to hear a big orchestra that's what you're going to hear well um actually this week i don't remember where it was i think it was this week um there was actually a joke in a in a play or a musical about this is not a roundabout production um i don't don't remember what it was but somebody made a slam um and so i i I think a second cousin to what you're talking about michael yeah (laughs) so that's uh junk over at lincoln center theater it's playing through january 7th 2018 so uh get there uh, i've also included a link to michael's review of junk which was uh 
when was that? It was November 12th, the Patrick Page uh, episode. So uh, you can do that there. Um, Peter, you got a chance to see uh, Matthew Lombardo's Who's Holiday. So tell us about that. Well, uh, first and foremost, uh, believe what it says on the bus shelters, which is uh, when these shows advertise, see the show that Dr. Seuss does not want you to see. Um, do not think that this is a kiddie show. If uh, if your kids love Dr. Seuss, this is not the place to take them because there's plenty of profanity in it. Uh, and I mean, hard level, hardcore profanity, uh, not just the F word. Um, so what it is is Cindy Lou is all grown up and what she's become uh, much to the chagrin I'm sure of big Dr. Seuss fans and Dr. Seuss himself and I can understand why the estate was not happy with this play uh, is she's essentially become trailer trash and um, I use that term very specifically because the set is a trailer a marvelous set by the way uh, terrific um, detail in it it's fun to look at it um, but she is trailer trash and she makes no bones about it and what she's do she's been released from prison and she's having a party now it's a one woman show uh, that's very clear from the playbill so you know the party guests aren't going to show up and the reason they don't show up is because they don't want to deal with her anymore because she's been in prison so so uh, what? little by little um, now and then a person will call and give an excuse that's very flimsy and very see-throughable and she explains to us that uh, indeed uh, she knows that this cannot be the real excuse and she gives good reasons why so she gets a little uh, disappointed needless to say that people don't want to know her all right some of it's a lot of fun for the first it's only an hour long for i'd say the first half hour people were guffawing like crazy and having a wonderful time and understandably so with leslie margarita who you may remember from dames at sea um terrific 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 in the part really something and then it gets deadly serious where she talks about what got her to prison what happened in prison all that business and i'm thinking oh my god this playwright has really painted himself into a corner with industrial strength paint <laughs> there is no way he is going to get out of this oh my god he had the audience having such a good time and now he's gone too far oh my god he's ruined it for everybody oh my god and let me tell you matthew lombardo pulls such a smart rabbit out of the hat so amazing that at the end of the show, I actually had tears in my eyes. It was so clever and again indicates why this guy's a playwright and why I'm a critic because he has an imagination that was so smart in the way he did it. I really urge everybody to get over there. Yeah, you're not going to be laughing after a half hour, but I'll be very surprised if you're not moved at the end of the show with the spectacular idea he has to make you really, really happy that you went to see Who's Holiday. Oh, wow. That's great. I have to schedule that one. That's uh, quite quite an endorsement there. Just so. a little background. I haven't seen the show yet, but uh, it was to have been done last year around this time oh, with yeah, yeah. Jennifer Simard. And that didn't happen because the, the Seuss estate was fighting it. And I guess it was tied up in litigation at that point. And only um, – it seems to me only like <laughs> – Gosh, like maybe um, two months ago, uh, the announcement came that, uh, you know, the decision had been made in Lombardo's favor. And so then it was quickly announced that there would be this production with Leslie Margarita, who I do agree is really, really great. So I can only imagine how wonderful she is in the part. Phenomenal, in fact. Phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Quite the endorsement, so we'll have to uh, put that on the schedule there. Uh, Peter, you also got down to the Duke to see a different production of Peter Pan? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> now, we, <laughs> yeah, uh, this is by the Bedlam Theater Company, so you can't expect that it's going to be business as usual. It, uh, they love to deconstruct, and they do it very well. Uh, let me just say this. If you're familiar with Peter Pan, and I imagine everybody is, uh, you probably know Peter Pan as well as you know Annie. Um, what happens here is not only is it deconstructed, but um, it's the scenes are not in the order that we're used to seeing them. So they play around with that too. So if you don't like the show, and you may not, um, 
when you get to the scene where the kids come back um, from Neverland back into the Darling home, uh, don't think that's the end of the show because they flash back and forward and all that kind of stuff. That's what goes on during this uh, production. Um, I, I went with it, um, but um, not uh, so unconditionally. Uh, I decided that, well, all right, uh, let's see what they're going to do next. Captain Hook is played by a woman, um, and uh, characters play this one, that one, and the other one. Uh, they uh, There's only a, a, a cast of about a half dozen, and uh, there's plenty. Much of the Barry dialogue is there, not all of it, and certainly they add a, a line here or there um, to comment on what they're doing, but, uh, but uh, I... I I can give this one, as the expression goes, a qualified approval. I, I do believe that it's worth seeing from the vantage point if you've seen Peter Pan and, and know it well and want to see what people would do with it. If, you, if you've liked the Bedlam productions in the past, and there's another one downtown, so they're obviously doing well because that's their pride and prejudice, which um, they fool around with a bit too, but not as much as they do here. This one, they've taken more liberties, and... Um, you may say, um, don't give me liberty, uh, give me death rather than having to sit through this, um, because I know it's not pleasing a lot of people I've talked to. Uh, but this is one of those shows that you use that namby-pamby word, interesting, uh, because that's what it mostly is more than anything else. It's more interesting than it is successful. So uh, be prepared for a wild ride. And by the way, no flying at all, none whatsoever. There's a, a thing they do to... Um, that they think is clever uh, to excuse it, but um, it, it was a perfectly decent explanation, but nothing um, that you say, oh, that's marvelous. I don't know. I never said, oh, that's marvelous once at this production, but um, but still, from what I've heard from other people, when I told them I was going and I saw the eye rolling, I, I have to say that um, I seem to respond to it more than other people did. And um, the audience I was with um, gave very polite applause at the end. So, so you are here with warned um, that um, it's a very atypical Peter Pan and um, it's going to please those people who just want to see something different with Peter Pan. So if you are on the Bedlam website and you see the Peter Pan poster, it's a uh, middle-aged scruffy Peter Pan smoking a cigarette. So holding a drink, I think. Uh, so <laughs> it might give you an idea that this is maybe not the show to take your kids to uh, if you're going to go see. I mean, the Duke on 42nd Street, I mean, I'd imagine that some folks might walk into this thinking they're going to go see a kid's production yeah, of your Pan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, at least yeah. it's not at at least it's not at the new victory. Yeah, I was just gonna say it is. <laughs> it is a couple blocks down from, you know, all that new victory show is sold out. Oh, look, there's a Peter Pan. <laughs> yeah, if you don't know the show, you're gonna be tremendously confused. Tremendously. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's not for, it's not for first timers. No, not at all. All right, uh, and finally for our review section, Peter, you got to see the Parisian woman. Per, uh, Parisian yeah, woman. Per, Parisian woman. <laughs> Right. Uh, so tell us about that. Well, this is Bo Willimon's play, and um, Bo Willimon uh, I first became familiar with when he was um, just starting out and entered a new play contest called Future Fest in Dayton, Ohio, where I go most summers and judge, and we voted his play Farragut North, the best play, and of course it went off to Broadway and then became a movie called The Ides of March, and, and now of course he's uh, been heavily involved with House of Cards, and um, here he is on Broadway, and uh, good for him. Uh, this is a play that... Um, has a, a dynamite first 10 minutes and a pretty dynamite um, last 20 minutes. In between, um, it, it gets a little arid, but uh, he's setting you up for what uh, the surprise is to come. Um, the audience really gasped and surprised uh, and towards the end of the play and certainly gasped uh, with delight at the beginning of the play. So uh, th there's enough there to carry you over to the parts that aren't um, as entertaining as those moments uh, that I'm speaking 
speaking of. So Uma Thurman's here, and she's doing an excellent job as a woman who's married to a high-powered man and therefore doesn't have to work, um, does a little thing here and there, a volunteer, what have you. But she doesn't have to work, and um, he's up for a very important post, and she wants him to get it because, of course, anybody who has money and really experiences the good life wants more money and more good life and more power. And she's going to make sure that he gets it. But this doesn't mean that he – this is not one of those stories where the uh, – a, a Macbethy type thing uh, where he is not um, as interested in getting ahead as she is. No, he's interested in getting ahead too and he makes uh, certain overtures to make sure that happens as well. But um, – She's not quite the woman behind the man. She's the woman next to the man under the circumstances. And uh, But uh, she will go to any length she can to make sure she gets what she wants to keep her comfortable lifestyle and status. And uh, that becomes very clear towards the end of the play. I think Uma Thurman is marvelous uh, in the part. Uh, she really knows what she's doing. She has a wonderful demeanor. Um, she's very matter-of-fact in the scenes where she must be matter-of-fact, as if to, what she's talking about is no big deal whatsoever, when it certainly will strike the rest of the audience as quite a big deal for what she's asking and what she's been doing to get what she wants. So um, Blair Brown is excellent as well as the person who turns out to be pretty aghast at seeing what this character wants. Um, and Philip Sue, um, though not having much to do, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a smaller part than we've seen her in in a while, certainly turns out to be a very important character in this play and does her job extraordinarily well. In fact, um, what's really wonderful, too, when um, – Uma Thurman comes up with a bombshell towards the end of the play because you've seen who she is. You're not even sure she's telling you the truth. Ah. That's what's really good. Um, <laughs> you do find out she is in the next scene, but nevertheless, at that moment in time, you're saying, well, this could be just another ploy. Um, and the thing is, when you hear about her ploy, if you consider it the worst case scenario, and you say, well, maybe she didn't do it, uh, you will find that uh, the worst-case scenario is worse uh, than a worst-case scenario. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, there's a lot of um, entertainment here on the stage of the Hudson, which, by the way, has the most comfortable seats on Broadway, not an irrelevant thing when you're sitting through a play that has no intermission. And um, so uh, maybe not a must-see, but uh, a damn good see. And um, I was uh, very glad to see and gasp at um, at the revelation at the end and enjoy the revelation at the beginning. All right. So, Michael, you see that this week, right? Yes. And I see it this week, so we'll chat about it next weekend uh, when we have our reviews uh, in the next podcast. So um, before we wrap up for the day, uh, Michael, you had a great conversation with um, Philip Caruba, who's a press representative who, uh, over at the Paper Mill Playhouse. And um, he was in the uh, production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat with David Cassidy, who passed away last week. We had a great story. Why don't you tell us about that? Yes, it's just that uh, last week we neglected to mention or didn't have a chance to mention uh, the passing of David Cassidy, who, of course, is not primarily known for theater, but he he certainly did work in the theater, including Broadway. Uh, lots of uh, the obits that I saw mentioned Blood Brothers, in which he appeared with his half-brother, Sean Cassidy. But I didn't see much mention of the fact that, that David did have a stint in the original, the, fir- the first Broadway production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And I saw him in it. Uh, and although I, I remember that, although I didn't uh, very much enjoy his performance style, it was very, very um, uh, kind of broad and uh, presentational. I would say uh, I remember how well he sang it and how professional he was as compared to another Joseph that I saw who was Andy Gibb, which was a kind of a train wreck. So I'm glad that I got to see David on Broadway in that show because I did not get to see him in Blood Brothers. And I remembered that Philip Karuba, yes, who is now a press agent, has been for years, started out as an actor himself, and he was in the show. So I asked him about that. I said, were you in it 
were you still in it when David Cassidy was in it? And Philip said, yes. So we, we, we became quite good friends. And he was telling some wonderful stories about him and what a nice guy he was. So I'm, I'm glad that I got to see that. And I just, as I say, I was surprised that uh, it wasn't mentioned in, in the obits that I saw. Because it turns out, actually, that David was in it even longer than I thought. It was seven or eight months on Broadway. And then apparently he toured in the show. Um, so, uh, you know, obits can't cover everything. And I understand that his, that David Cassidy's status as a teen idol, uh, overwhelms all of that in a lot of people's minds. But I did just want to mention that I'm, I saw him in that show and, and I'm really very glad that I did. I'm reminded by my friend, Josh Ellis, um, the publicist and also the, um, star and writer of, um, call my publicist uh the mm. one man show that's been around town um <laughs> sent me the obituary on jim neighbors this week and said there's no mention that he did that he did a man of la mancha album with marilyn horn yeah i guess they're not going to mention that in an interview with jim neighbor uh, an obituary with jim neighbors uh, that may be a little too much to expect because i don't think that was uh, that popular an album but uh those of us who are interested in broadway um did look in vain in david Cassidy obituaries to see if they were going to mention the fig leaves are falling <laughs> yeah. musically did in uh, the 68 69 season um, which lasted four performances so uh, that wasn't in there either yeah um, we do have a different uh, hope when we look at obituaries that they are going to recognize uh, Broadway mm. um, on some level and um, it does seem to be a little bit down on the uh, list of priorities so anyway but we remember I uh, I didn't see that, Joseph, but I did see Blood Brothers with the Cassidys, and uh, I remember uh, I remember thinking how wonderful it is that two brothers got to do a show like that sure, to get sure. together on Broadway. It kind of made sure. me wish that my brothers were in the acting <laughs> profession and I could have done a show with them. It would have been really nice. Uh, on the you other know, it, hand, the stories we hear about the Andrews sisters, where they were doing over here, doesn't <laughs> indicate that it's always sweetness in life when sweet, uh, siblings get to do a show together. But that's another story. <laughs> well, siblings, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. You, my brothers, my my brothers who are immediately older than me, you know, uh, were. Uh, I was terrified of them and loved them at the same t- and loved them uh, at the same time. You know, they came to my rescue whenever I was in trouble. But <laughs> we did have some knockdown, dragout fights when we were little. You know, uh, it's a, it's complicated, but uh, isn't it? I I remember thinking that how great it would to be sharing a Broadway stage with your brother. Mm-hmm. So, uh, all right. So before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. Google Play plays us. Stitcher plays us. Tune in plays us anywhere that you can get finer podcasts. Uh, you can subscribe to us. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at broadwayradio.com as well as linked to some of the things we've talked about today. Um, and that's about it. So, Peter, why don't you tell us what was the answer to last week's trivia? It seemed to be a little bit easier than this week's trivia. <laughs> Two Tony-winning musicals from different seasons that nevertheless opened in the same calendar year and ran concurrently for a long time. Each had a character that had the same occupation. This was a featured character in the longer running of the two and the lead in the shorter running musical. What are the shows, the characters' names, and the occupation? Well, the year was 1964. The shows were Hello, Dolly! and Fiddler on the Roof. And the occupation was Matchmaker, a leading role in Dolly and a featured one in Fiddler by way of Yenta. Okay. <clears throat> Greg Blazer was the first to get it, followed by <laughs> David Kincannon, Jed Slaughter, Phil Bond, Josh Israel, Donald Tessioni, Ingrid Gammerman, Brigadude, Chris Skiles, and Greg Christensen. <laughs> so, so yes, and I want to point out, I want to point yeah. out that I think that the first answer to the trivia came like 15 minutes oh, after the show was, yes. show was yes. posted. So they didn't even listen to the show. They went right to the end. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that too, that it was uh, right away. Yeah, Greg, Bla- Je- Greg Blazer was really on the ball there. Anyway, this week, a <laughs> little harder. <clears throat> 
After Porky married Petunia, at the reception, she ran into a guest who'd never met the groom. In introducing Porky to the guest, the new bride said what is also the title of a song written for, but eventually dropped from a Tony-winning musical. What's the name of the song? Okay. All right. So uh, if you have skipped to the end and just listened to this part, send off your email to trivia at broadwayradio.com, then go back and listen to the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) we love you all. Uh, So uh, on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. And if you say, hey, go away, I will. But I think better still, I'd better stay around and love you. Do you think I have a case?